Hey everyone, it's Jackie, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Sandra Galan about her new book, Nobody's Mother. In it, she tackles some of Paul's words to Timothy, some words that have put a lot of us women in bondage. And in case you don't know what 1 Timothy 2 says, let me read part of it to you. It says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. I had to wrestle with that part of the text. Now, many of you may not have had to, but perhaps you've had this other part of the text used against you, where it says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. That text right there has been used to tell women that their number one role in life is to give birth to children, to mother. And I am a mother and I'm all for that. But what if you're single or what if you're married and you can't have children? Then how does a woman fulfill her calling, at least the way Paul has been taught to us? But what if through all of these centuries, we've been missing something? In Paul's, as we've interpreted Paul's words. What if Paul wasn't limiting us women at all? That's what we're going to dig into today with Dr. Sandra Galan. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, welcome, Dr. Galan. I'm so glad to have you on this episode. Thank you, ma'am. Very happy to see you again. Talk with you. Always good. Always good. Um, okay, your book tackles First Timothy 2 in a new way, which I really love, because um, not only do you dive into the text, right, Acts uh, 19, you take us to First Timothy 2, but what you do that I think is unique is you walk us through the ancient literary sources, epigraphic evidence, architect, the arts, in order to put context around the passage so that we can better understand what's happening. Um on page 156, you tell us why you went into this research, or what you wanted to accomplish through the research, what your goals yeah. were. Yeah. And you say this, because I want our audience to understand, this is where you sat your research. So you say this, the focus of my research has been to answer a different question than can a woman teach in the church today. Instead, my objective was twofold. Number one, to discern whether a local situation was likely on Paul's mind when he wrote to Timothy about women, especially about childbearing. And number two, to know whether a woman with a gift, teaching gift, is limited to applying it only to her children. Um, so this is your 
objectives when you go into your research. But what I want to also point out to our listeners, because I find this to be often true, is that we women in, in academia tend to pursue the studies that we pursue, not because we're trying to go after something academic per se, but usually because there's been some personal experience, some usually painful personal experience that causes angst in us, right? And drives us back to scripture to to try to make meaning of the situation we find ourselves in as Christian women. And this is true of you. you. You start your book with a personal experience and how that started you on this trajectory of examining 1 Timothy 2. I'd love for you to just kind of give us a little bit of that so that people know that's where you're coming from. Sure. So, yes, this is this book's about a quarter of a century in the making, and it started as a personal quest. I am the fourth of five kids. If you've seen Sound of Music, whether you saw the Julie Andrews version or the you know, more modern version, either way, you know that she's just this, she's awesome with kids. And that was my mother. We had a blast growing up, and we made daisy chains, and we learned to sing Jesus Loves <laughs> Me, and we hatched, you know, chrysalis into butterfly, and it was fabulous. And I wanted that for myself. And when I became a Christian, you know, there was a, a strong emphasis in the subculture on being a wife and a mom. And I totally embraced that and valued that. And so when I married the love of my life and we wanted to start a family, we hit a brick wall of infertility that spanned a decade. It was seven early losses, pregnancy losses, then an ectopic pregnancy, then three mm. failed adoptions before we finally had the successful adoption of our daughter. Now, she's almost 30, so it's been a while, but this for me was not just uh, an ethical crisis about in vitro. It wasn't just a moral crisis and a financial crisis, a crisis of intimacy, you know, violated and explored. It was all those things. It's hard on a marriage. It's, it's yep. you can't, I, somebody wanted to promote promote me at work and I said no I'm going to be pregnant like your life is on hold but the hardest part for me was the spiritual crisis because I had been taught that if a woman has a teaching gift she is because of the phrase she will be saved through childbearing that means that a woman will be saved from obscurity or she'll be saved from her need to teach uh, through Mm. the nuclear family and a, I couldn't have a nuclear family. And then B, hello, you look around and go, why did the early church have all those virgins? <laughs> why did you really have nuns, you know, celibate nuns? The Reformation was emptying the monasteries of celibate people. Mm-hmm. That is an emphasis on the nuclear family is not how the church has really understood that. And so it began for me just as a quest I had to know. What does save through childbearing really mean? Doesn't seem to fit Pauline teaching on, you know, eternal salvation, but for sure it can't mean the nuclear family. Did they even have a nuclear family at the time of Paul? I'm not sure they did. So I'm not sure they did either. Yeah. So it it was a personal quest in the beginning to just find out what in the world does that phrase mean? Well, and it's interesting because I think, you know, one of the things as a person who studied the Bible for 30 years, I there are verses that I've always... Uh, like had to put to the side of the plate because I couldn't make sense of them, you know, and I figured sooner or later something would help me bring it more to the center of the plate where I could digest it. And this particular passage um, 
is is one of those that has always stayed on the side of the plate, you know, saved through childbirth. What on earth does that mean? (laughs) Right. What does that mean? And I love it when people say, Paul is very clear in 1 Timothy 2. And you're like, like, really? Really? (laughs) Because what does saved by childbirth mean? Because Paul doesn't seem to say anywhere else that salvation is through birth. No, so in fact, very emphatically the opposite, yeah. The opposite, right. Yeah. So it's one of those verses I've never been able to make sense of, and you really do a great job of shedding some light onto it. Mm-hmm. So what has, before we move into your research, what has been the traditional understanding of First Timothy 2, particularly about being saved yeah. in childhood? You, you mentioned a few things, but how have you seen that traditional teaching actually have impact on real women's lives? Like, well, what's I been know, the result? Yeah, great question. I know in Romanian Christianity, there have been preachers even in this decade who have said, you have to have as many babies as you can. Right. Uh, and even even when women have sacrificed their health to do that. Um, and so there's, there's that. There are those who uh, predominantly uh, in the South today, there's there's been that understanding that it's it's the proper channeling of a woman's gifts that yes she can teach but she has to limit it to the sphere of the home and if you don't then you don't value the home you're a radical feminist some some of that um interestingly enough the emphasis through the centuries has sort of been all over the place but there was less emphasis on uh eve on the man being formed first, therefore creation order suggesting hierarchy, the emphasis is really more on the second line uh, that precedes that, which is the woman was deceived. And there was the idea that because women are more deceived, more easily right. deceived, they should not pass on content. They should just pass on content to their children. Just to their which, children. To the vulnerable. I mean, it, <laughs> to actually, the next generation. Huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that's been really, there's been a shift actually away from, as we've discovered through more women in business, more women in the marketplace going, oh, okay, they aren't, you know, swimsuit edition. Maybe they're not deceived in the same ways or or more easily deceived. And so there's been way less of an emphasis on that, especially in evangelicalism, and then a shifting emphasis to, okay, but Adam was first. And there's hierarchy in that, and that's rooted in creation that's before right. the fall. And so that that's more sort of a newer understanding, but that's sort of, we, can, we wanted to keep, the church wanted to keep the same practice of women can't teach, but shifted the emphasis on Paul's why, because he does give a why. He does give a why, and we're going to get into yeah. that. And you know, that she um, is more easily deceived, that in the 1990s or two, early 2000s, I had really godly women say that to me that if I taught mm-hmm. um, that I needed to be really careful because it's obvious that women are more easily deceived and, and I needed to be careful because of how I would handle doctrine in a way that would be deceptive and so that was actually said to me wow. in my wow. lifetime um, that women shouldn't be teaching because they're more deceptive. Well, you know it, over in Second Corinthians <clears throat> Paul says to them I'm concerned for all of you that as Eve was deceived, like it, it's a human thing it's to a be human deceived. Thing. And, yes. you know, to people's credit, they want to, they have a high view of scripture, which we do too, right? But yeah. it's part of the challenge has been, I want to be countercultural if I need to be, but, but I want to have a high view of scripture. And if that's what Paul says, even if it doesn't fit my back, you know, my 
context, right. I guess I got to believe that. Well, and even if it doesn't make sense, because just yeah. as you said, women have entered the workforce since the 1970s in a, in a wave, and we now have a vice president who's female, so we know that that's not necessarily our experience is that women are more easily deceived. And yet, the scripture says that there it is at face value, and if you don't understand the context, which we're going to dive into, then it looks like, yep, women are more easily yeah. deceived, period. There it is on the paper right there. It's clear yeah. and simple. So and can I getting... have a high view of scripture like Paul and still acknowledge that women can teach? Yes, I think we can. Let's find out how and why. <laughs> okay. So um, before we uh, dive into this, um, I want to just one more thing, and that is when there's a shift in how the church starts to see a particular passage, like 1 Timothy 2 in particular, um, what we tend to hear is like a loud kind of cry creep up to say, oh, you know, feminism has seeped into Christianity. Um and I think you do an excellent uh, job in your book showing us that that's not the case, that this is not us acquiescing to culture. So why should we, you tell us in your book, why should we revisit and take a fresh look at passages? Um, yeah. Why, so, why do we keep looking? Yeah, often people will say, okay, the church has been, you know, had a certain view of women for 2,000 years, and, you know, so we're capitulating to culture to change it. And the first reason to relook is that is just a false narrative of history first of all we have uh if any capitulating to culture happened it was misogyny was allowed we might have guarded the door the front door to feminism and womanism but we were not guarding the back door against radical misogyny and so if you trace people that we love on issues like the trinity or like aquinas on friendship they have great things to say on some issues, but when it comes to women, they have things that we would, complementarian or egalitarian, are going to go, yeah, that's not biblical. Sometimes yeah. they say women aren't made in the image of God. Sometimes they say they're, you know, more that that the serpent went to Eve because she was defective. Like all kinds of things that neither camp uh, signs on to now. In fact, the word complementarian comes from not wanting to call yourself a traditionalist once you learn the tradition. So there's that in just in church history. There's also evidence that there were ordained offices of women, but because they're called like servant and widow, we miss them on the tombstones because we're thinking that just means the widow of Joe, or we miss that it's the widow of Cappadocia. Um, so there, there's that part of history, but there's also something else that has happened, and that is with the shift of women coming into history departments, the emphases on what we study have changed. In the past, yes. if we got women, it was Cleopatra or Helen, you know, the mom of Constantine. They had, they had adjacent power connected to wealthy empire or dynasty. But what we didn't get was the everyday lives of both men and women and, well, and slaves. And with this entry of women into the academy, there is more of an emphasis on social history that asks mm. things like, what did they eat? What was their life expectancy? How long did it take to walk from Thessalonica to Ephesus? You know, those kinds of questions that have nothing to do with empire, but that have everything to do with everyday life. And as it turns out, our very best document from the first century, uh, Roman Empire, is the New Testament. 
It's got mm. all this everyday stuff, including, hey, I left my parchments and Troas. Could you bring them to me? I need my coat. Right. You know, come before I need winter. my cloak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and we shipwrecked, and they thought we were Hermes, and, you know, all that stuff is very much everyday. And so for women to be doing dissertations on some of this, and we're doing at it, men and women are doing it at a time when the Internet means... Uh, when when my brother did his dissertation more than 15 years ago, he was working with some French. He didn't speak French. He had to go get it translated. Then he had to mail something to France, then wait for it. It was like Oof. six weeks before he had an answer. Today, I could pull up the journey, you know, Anatolian Digest, run it through Google Translate. If I have a question, I Google the name of the scholar, find his or her name on their university website, go to sleep you know, mail it and have an answer from them the next morning in my inbox. And so the ability to collaborate with scholars across the world, to bring in experts on inscriptions to talking about the New Testament, where before you wouldn't even have known who to reach out to. Right. We were siloed by our libraries. And so this explosion of information has just made warp speed research possible and one of the benefits for us as biblical scholars is you take a place like Pompeii and you can walk into a place that was a brothel and see you know it's nasty women in nasty positions with but there's a price list and you notice she's got a full head of beautiful hair well that just Mm. kills the possible understanding of first corinthians 11 that a shaved head was prostitutes like there's zero evidence of that and some evidence that prostitutes had beautiful hair. So we can eliminate some of our, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, just by the enormous amount of archaeological information, the internet, the Google Translate, the scholars collaborating. And women asking different and questions. asking different yeah. questions. Yep. It mattered that we ended up going it to did. seminaries. We it need made each a big other. difference. Yes, we do. So let's, um, let's put... First Timothy in context, because, you know, I love, I saw a meme the other day that said, uh, text without context is a con. And I thought, <laughs> I'm probably one of the only few okay. that loved that meme, but yeah. I was like, yes, there's yes. truth to that, yes. you know? There is. Context is king here. And so yeah, tell us sure. what we need to know about Ephesus and, and why do we need to know yeah. Artemis? Because why you spend Ephesus? a lot of your time on this goddess Artemis and... Yeah. What on earth does she have to what do What does she with? have to do with this? Okay. What does she have first, to do with Paul's words? Yes, I'm so <laughs> glad you asked. So first of all, we know from the book of Acts, Acts 17, Paul spent more than two years in Ephesus. So, And we know about Ephesus that have many harbors. It's like the New York City of its day. It's the perfect place to camp if you want to spread the gospel all over the world. The harbors come in and out. You've got access to Egypt, everywhere. So he is in Ephesus, very strategic, And we have two long descriptions of things that happen. The first thing is a massive, uh, I call it the first bonfire of the vanities, where the magic workers are coming to Christ and they're burning their magic books. And that's happening in Ephesus. And you have uh, some supernatural things happen to the point where Paul, if he just touches a kerchief or an apron, they take it to people that need healing and are Mm. healed. So supernatural things Jesus is doing to show him more powerful 
than the magic that they're doing. Same exact chapter, you have the silver workers also upset that Paul's cutting into their trade because people would come from all over the Roman Empire to see the biggest wonder of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is the Temple of Artemis. And so they're coming from all over, and it was souvenir central, and people aren't buying as many souvenirs, and they're a little bit Mm. mad about it. And so there's a, a disturbance that happens that where pretty much the whole town runs into the theater, which still exists today, and we know it holds 25,000 people. And for two hours, they're chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We know from Acts that Paul was planning to leave Ephesus and go to Macedonia, and that that sped up his departure timeline. He'd already sent Timothy ahead. So that places Paul in Ephesus, and we know from inscriptions now that Artemis and magic were connected. Those were not two separate spiritual forces, which is actually what I thought when I did my dissertation 10 years ago. Hmm. But now we're able to make the connection that actually, no, they're, they're related. So that's on Paul's mind. Last thing on his mind before he's run out of town. He writes a letter back to Timothy, and the first, uh, the first thing we have to bear in mind is it's a personal letter. It's not a letter to the church in Ephesus. All the forms of the word you are singular until the very end. It's basically, hi, y'all. <laughs> um, but the letter is a personal letter to Timothy, which doesn't make it less scripture, but it suggests that maybe he's going to assume Timothy knows some things that right. the whole church doesn't need to have explained. Um, he writes in chapter 1, verse 3, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. And we get our cues from the book of Acts. What's the massive false doctrine? It's related to Artemis of the Ephesians and not just the generic Artemis. I like to liken it to Mary of Guadalupe. Like, you know, there's the generic Virgin Mary and then there's the derivative Virgin of Guadalupe. And it's the same backstory, but it's very localized with a very localized story. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. So my job to figure out who was Artemis at the time of Paul was, if you go to Ephesus today, which you, you've been there, right? I have, yeah. They give you a, what I call a synoptic Artemis. You start with the 7th century mother goddess that's, you know, in Anatolia. And then she slowly evolves into Artemis Diana. And then 400 years later, they call her, Jerome calls her many-breasted. And they conflate all of that. My job was to say, I need to know who is Artemis at the time of the earliest Christians? How did they understand her? Right. So how we did go they back understand and, her? How did they understand her? Right. I right, don't right, right. care if, you know, t- 200 miles away, they had a different name for her and a, a, right. a different Guadalupe, right? I needed to know who was she at the time of Paul because that's who Paul left Timothy in Ephesus there to confront. And there are all kinds of little Artemisy words in his letter. Which we're going to get to. I love that. I've I've never understood the the amount of illusion that Paul is Paul is alluding to her all the way through. Very much like actually the author of Genesis does in the very beginning, countering all the gods of of, of the Canaanite gods. Nice. You know, without actually saying yeah. a good Jew would never else, say right? their names. <laughs> you would never say their name, but he's alluding but, to it all the yeah, way through, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, one of the things you tell us. Uh, 
and, and one of the well, one of the things I learned about Artemis um, was that she was a fertility goddess. That has kind of been the thing that's been handed down whenever I've researched First Timothy two. They would say, "Well, you have to understand she was a fertility goddess." And you take us through all kinds of things: literary sources, inscriptions, architect, and art to show us a more accurate view of who Artemis was in Ephesus during Paul's time frame. Like another thing that was taught to me was this idea that um, she, her temple was a temple of prostitution, right? So like those things were things that I originally learned about her. And then you take us through this whole thing and kind of blow it up. And you say, Artemis is not associated with prostitution. She is not anti-sex and she is not anti-male and she is not associated with mothering everything that i learned she was so um from the literary sources who is she what did you discover yeah so you know i started with the synoptic artemis of what's the story you know homer is is a key there are other sources but homer's the biggie so we know that Artemis Generic is the daughter of the big daddy god who is Zeus. His mother, his wife is Hera. Hera cheats with Leto. Leto gets pregnant with twins. And she goes to give birth and nobody in the empire wants to give her refuge because they know they'll hack off the wife. But eventually she finds a little grove uh, near Ephesus. So that makes Ephesus the natal city in the way Bethlehem is Jesus's natal city it they do annual pageants like it is known as the place for pilgrimage to you know celebrate the annual birthday of artemis she has a whole month in ephesus devoted to herself uh interestingly enough apollo is associated with being born over in delos and i didn't even find his name in an inscription it's like did you write him out of the record like (laughs) and that's her her twin that's her twin. That's yeah. her so twin, her, yeah. It's Artemis and Apollo are twins, but Artemis is the firstborn, and apparently firstborn has preeminence here because you don't really even find her kid brother mentioned uh, in the in the inscriptions or really anything I could find connected with Ephesus. But the long story short, she watches her mother writhe in pain giving birth to her brother for nine days and goes to Daddy Zeus and said, I don't want anything to do with sex, childbirth, mothering, make me a confirmed virgin. And so fast forward to the time of Paul, you see a very strong emphasis both on virginity and the local emphasis is on her being a midwife. In the same way that the Statue of Liberty in both Paris and New York Harbor are connected with liberty, but only one of those two is connected with immigration. That's right. The local story connects her with midwifery, with her brother. And and here's an example of how we could pin it down. A a writer contemporary with the earliest Christians says, you know, 300 years ago when her first temple burned, well, that's because Alexander the Great was being born and she had to go be the midwife. And, you know, a goddess can't be in two places at once. So she chose... You know, his birth as a midwife service over protecting her own temple. So that establishes it that at the time of the earliest Christians, they're still thinking of her, especially in that city as a midwife. That's just one of a number of examples of that. And when you say midwife, I think what was interesting, well, first of all, (laughs) the description or the depiction that you outline of her through the sources, um, 
She's kind of a badass. I mean, she's kind a hunter. Of. She <laughs> she kills people yeah. left and right. Women, she's a little, probably more than men. So it's not more like women Wonder than Woman, men. Who's like a friend to all women? No, right? She's no, ruthless. Yeah, and 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 so I think what I want the audience to get with with the midwifery is with midwifery is that there's two things that she's apt to do to help a woman who's in pain from childbirth. Right? Correct. Yes. Correct. You want to tell them or you want me she's to She's either going to deliver them <laughs> safely or she's going to use them. They're going to ask her to kill me, basically kill me quickly, uh, deliver me safely, or kill me quickly with your painless arrows. Euthanize me. Right. Because, you know, imagine a world where there's no such thing as a C-section. You're not just afraid you're going to die. You're afraid you're going to writhe for nine days before you die. Right. Uh, it, I mean, it's a terrible way to die. Yes. And so, and a lot of women died that way. Number one high percentage, yes, high time. percentage of mortality. Yeah. What I what I think people, particularly in America, don't understand is that women in antiquity, when they went, childbirth was probably one of the most threatening, life threatening experiences they would encounter. Um, they could easily die, and so every time giving birth was a major ordeal. About is my child going to live, and and am I going to live? Correct. And so what Artemis did was because of the pain she saw her mother go through, she was like, I will not let women go through that. So I'll either help them safely through, right? Mm-hmm. So this has something to do with First Timothy, save through childbirth, right? right? Yes. Or yes. I will euthanize them. I will yeah. kill them I, yeah. I, by their request, but I will. they will painlessly die versus staying on forever. Yeah. And that's a significant thing to realize as we move into interpreting, right? It is. And that she's firstborn in the creation story, in the natal story in her city. Right. Uh, you know, Artemis before Apollo in their creation story, Protoss first. Um, so the number one fear, imagine you're a Gentile woman and it's time for the rubber to meet the road, so to speak, of do I really believe in Jesus or do I not believe in Jesus? Do I believe in Jesus enough to not go to Artemis's temple and make my offering? And not only, it, remember, it's not an individualized society. It's a communal society. So you're not just afraid she is going to be hacked off at you because of your neglect of her. Your whole community is saying, do you hate us? Right. You want to bring down her wrath on the whole city? You know, sometimes Jewish people got accused of being atheists. And it was like, why do you hate us for your unbelief in the gods? Because the idea being, they don't just take out you. They take out all of us because of you. This huge peer pressure. Um, and so here, here she is. She's pregnant. And I think Paul is saying Jesus is better. Jesus can help you. Jesus. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a contrast between what she's offering the community. Totally. And they're very tempted to worship her because, hey, yeah. they could yeah. die. And the wrath, right? All of it. I mean, if you put yourself in this situation, you can go, oh, I get it. It's kind of like people who get cancer and suddenly they're told, well, hey, there's this, you know, there's this over here. You could try this thing with this different city or different country. And it's kind of black magic, but it might work. And people get panicky and they go, okay, I'll give it a shot. Right. Because it's life or shot. That's exactly right. Fear is a strong um, motivator. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It is. And death. Yes. Fear and death. Yes. Um, so I want to turn uh, to, there's so much in here like that, that I want to take our listeners through. Um, like I want them to actually 
like have you tell them every single literary source you used <laughs> and every single epigraphic evidence. But I can't because that would take too long. And also, um, I really think that people should go out and buy your book <laughs> and um, actually let them read it and see you build the excellent case that you build um, arguing who she is. And so I really want to encourage those of you out there to get the book, read it, and, and share it with other people because it's these kind of conversations. Even if you don't fully get everything, you're going to get enough here to be able to have a conversation with other Christians about First Timothy 2. And when we bring up these kinds of things, these, these, are, these are the evidences that start to reshape how we view women and how we understand these texts about women. So we can't cover it all. I'm telling you all to go buy the book. Um, but before uh, we turn to the actual text, which is what everybody's waiting for, you pointed out um, in that several areas where Paul alludes to Artemis without naming her. Um, can you share some of those so that it, so yeah. that they see why he's actually talking about her without us? We would not know that if we didn't yeah. know some things about Artemis. Yeah, I'd love to. So let me start outside of First Timothy. Uh, if you think about Ephesians 6, it's the spiritual warfare section. And what does Artemis carry around? A bow and arrow. Yep. And what is the breastplate of righteousness is to guard against the fiery arrows of the devil. And it's written to people in the city where their number one goddess is carrying an, a bow and arrow. Uh, again, not going to say her name, but yeah. <laughs> right. Righteous living as opposed to Artemis, who's the dark right. arts. Um, another thing I really love uh, in Ephesians 1, I found an inscription where a man uh, talks about how he has brought his inheritance to Artemis as an offering. Mm-hmm. And that was a thing that was done. You would bring your inheritance. And Paul opens Ephesians 1 going, okay, you're a Christian. You get an inheritance from your God. And guess what the inheritance is? God. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is just the down payment. Like, you get awesome. God as your inheritance. Are you kidding me? Like, right. he's saying Jesus is better. You know, so much better. And they would have um, understood this. Like, they the totally, it's not explained is because exactly. they totally got, wait, inheritance goes yeah. to Artemis, the number one yeah. God of our city, right? And she's a warrior. And yeah. so they get it. They hear that. We hear that. We do not have that context. We don't. Yeah. So it's wonderful. We're like, we love that we get an inheritance. I mean, just, you don't have to know anything about Artemis to appreciate that we're given something awesome. Right. But if you know what Paul's doing in his own context, you're like, he is a genius. Yeah. He's going but, after her but without also, saying it. Jesus is better. <laughs> Jesus is awesome. I get the benefits that they have to give their God. Uh, I, I'm a recipro- you know, we're going to inherit the earth. So that was cool. Uh, something else that was really interesting to me was there's a little uh, phrase later after chapter, you know, the, the section we are really talking about the childbearing, but later, later in the same letter, he talks about something that has really confused me. He refers to women as gossips and busybodies. busybodies. I'm like, that seemed just so misogynistic. Why would Paul describe women that way? Um, but then I backed up and was like, okay, he's talking about women who are going house to house. And there are a whole bunch of references to the church house to house throughout the New Testament. So I pictured, you know, screen door to screen doors, like maybe he's talking about gathering to gathering. And one of the words that we translate, which I now think is a misogynistic translation and really not what Paul, he's, he's borrowing from magic words, 
and the the gossips of busybodies are uh, forms of words having to do with magic and teaching nonsense. And again, you go back to, you don't have to know the inscriptions. You could just read the book of Acts and go, magic and Artemis? I left you there to get people to stop teaching, certain people to stop teaching false doctrine? False, false doctrine. And it looks, you know, you also, here, here's sort of a backdoor to Paul as well. Are, is there evidence that there are a lot of single women in Ephesus? Yes. A lot, a lot of single, right? There are so many. He has to divide the widows into three groups. Right. He's like, I want the younger ones to marry, which is the opposite of what he says in Corinth, which should also flag us that there's something local going, going on. on. Right, right. right. Um, and then if you have family that can take care of you, they need to take care of you. And those that are left, if they made certain qualification, go on the rolls and we are... We give them honor, which is the same word he uses for elders to refer to income, right? And so why would there be so many women in Ephesus? Well, I love the observation by N.T. Wright that we tend to become like what we worship. Hmm. And Paul makes reference in 1 Timothy to those who forbid to marriage, don't taste, don't touch. Like it's... It's proto-Gnosticism happening here. It's the, that's why I said it's the opposite of prostitution. Not that there wasn't plenty of immorality in the city, but that connected with Artemis is extreme virginity. Right. Which I don't think people realize. And that's one right. thing your book really touches is that she is a virgin. She's she not is. anti-sex or anti-male, right. but she is a virgin. And lots of people that follow her followed that like her, that yeah. as a state of being vir- virginity which is why Paul addresses the single women in Timothy in ways he doesn't Corinth. Yeah, right? so it's never stated outright that we're virgins in our city. It's just like if you look at the inscriptions, it's a little bit like the that when the junior league, you know, the, the rich volunteer women related to the <laughs> Artemis cult you don't see the men. You see grandma and then mom and then daughter. Um, so it looks like the office is sort of inherited, but you got enough money to buy an inscription and the, there are just no men mentioned. If they're married, they're not showing up, which is a little bit unusual in inscriptions. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So t- talk a little bit about the word uh, savior, because yeah. Paul makes that uh, emphasis in First yeah. Timothy and you tie it to her. He does. So, like, I found one inscription that calls her Artemis Soteria, and Soter is the male form of Savior. Soteria is the female form of it. And one thing that's particularly interesting to me is that in the very beginning of his letter, usually Paul starts a letter with grace and peace to you. It's not how he starts his letter to Timothy in Ephesus. He throws the word Savior right in the first verse as Christ is Savior and Lord and God, which are also titles of Artemis. Uh, She's called, uh, you know, Curia, uh, which is the female form of Lord. I don't translate it Lady because Lady has so many other nuances in English. I translate it Lordess so that we Hmm. get that it's the power in the word. uh, And uh, God uh, is another title for her manifest is another title and paul refers to christ made manifest do we know from acts he kept referring to her as the god made with hands 
<laughs> so, right? Again, it's like he doesn't come out and say her name. He's a good Jew. He's not going to mention the name of any other god, but it's it would be like me talking about Superman without saying his name, just saying kryptonite, phone boots, you know, capes. Red cape. We got it. We know who Clark we're talking Kent, about. Lois yeah, Lane. Yeah, 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 I don't yeah. have to spell it out and, for you. And this is why context matters so much, right? Like understanding who she is really helps us understand what Paul is doing. Correct. Whereas if you have no context really, about yeah. her um, or inappropriate context or, like you said, they smashed all of the information about her together, prostitution, these things, if you don't have an accurate picture of her during Paul's time, then you don't understand what Paul's doing in the text. Exactly. Um, you can okay. still get the truth about Jesus from the text. Yes. Right? Like you yes. don't have to have a PhD in context. It's just... It makes it come alive with each layer that you uncover. But also, like, 1 Timothy 2 is a restrictive passage for women. It has been used, and it's been considered a problematic passage for for women, right? Like, even in the last sentence, that makes no sense, saved by childbirth, right? So it's it's been that particular. You can understand who Jesus is, whether you know who Artemis or not. But you can't decipher 1 Timothy 2 very well without yeah. some of this information that really restricts and also seems to counter other things that Paul says about women right. and and women yes. the work that women did on with Paul and yeah. the what women did with Jesus right so it's Correct. like how do we make sense of this the women prophets all the way through history and you're going right. well if creation order says a woman can't speak in the presence of a man or can't teach biblical truth like suddenly now you're trying to erase all the women prophets or explain why they were exceptions or like it, it raises right the it whole doesn't day make Pentecost sense. is a real problem right so this is why it, it, we have to understand what Ephesus what's going on in Ephesus what's happening with Artemis in order to understand at least particularly first Timothy 2 better which is important for a lot of us women and men I think it's important for sure, the whole church yeah, yeah. You know, right sure. we shouldn't be we shouldn't be putting half the church on a bench you know yeah. so um let me go to your translation I'm going to read it um this will be the second time the audience has heard this passage but this time they're going to hear it from your translation um and I, I hope they pick up some differences than what I had said in the introduction um, and I want to put the verse out there because we're going to parse it a little bit. You're going to walk us through some things like what does it mean that she needs to be silent? And uh, what does it mean that Paul says, I'm allowing a woman uh, or wife neither to teach or have... Like, we're going to kind of go yeah. through some of that stuff. Um, so here's what, what you wrote. So I want the men or husbands to pray in every place. Likewise, the women or wives are to dress in suitable apparel with modesty and self-control. Their adornment must not be with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothing, but with good deeds, as is proper for a woman who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, but I am allowing a woman or wife neither to teach nor exercise, usurp, have autonomous authority over a man or husband, you're going to explain why you keep doing wife, yeah, woman, yeah, husband. Okay, yeah. Must remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and then Adam was, de- and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, because she was fully deceived, fell into transgression. But she will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is a faithful saying. Okay. Uh, why did you insert? 
wife or husband every time it says women or men? So in Koine Greek, which is, which is what Paul is writing in, there are not separate words for woman and wife. Only context tells you how to translate it, woman or wife. Is there something in the context that would point toward wife? Well, yes, childbirth. <laughs> childbirth. <laughs> Virgins aren't doing that. Not so much, yeah. <laughs> so that's the first really big clue. Um, the other thing is if you go over to First Peter 3, which is clearly about wives, it's that section about gentle, quiet spirit. If you put the two passages together, you see so much overlap, uh, starting with gold and pearls. And, you know, there is so much overlap that it is thought by, uh, let's say, like George and Dora Winston did a, a book on the subject, that there is maybe a preformed apostolic tradition relating to wives. That there is so much Peter and Paul are sharing in their outline that it can't be a coincidence. And in Peter, we know it's wives. So when you're trying to solve for X over in Paul and you've got a reference to childbearing and this same outline that Peter is following, then you think, okay. uh, And that changes uh, the understanding. If it's not women. If you take that understanding, and I'm I'm not coming down hard that it has to be either. I just want the reader to understand. If you're going to say, I'm not allowing a wife to teach a husband, (laughs) I'm not allowing a wife to teach or have autonomy over a husband, that has way different ramifications for the church if you read it for today than a woman can't teach a man. So just to start that uh, is a major consideration, which it would seem that the burden of proof would be on those who are taking it as women rather than wise if you got childbirth in view. Right, right. So let's go to one of the things Paul says is that women are to, uh, to learn. And you make the argument um, that that's the imperative. And, and he goes on to say they're to learn in quietness. What The suggestion what? is that they're learning, but they're not doing it in the demeanor that he would like to see. What, what, what makes you think that they're not? Um, because he says let the... He, he meant... He emphasizes quietness three different times in the passage, not always in relation to women, but something is happening. Actually, I like to start this passage higher than we started, which is with the men or husbands. Yes. And they're, they're angry about something. So they're supposed to settle down too. And so he has this really parallelism. He's got instructions to both men and women or husbands and wives or possibly men and wives. You know, I, I don't know exactly what the problem was but there is something that's causing conflict and if we know that certain people are teaching false doctrine it looks like what paul is telling timothy he wants to have happen is let them learn that is an imperative but let them do it quietly submissively you know there's something about the learning process the men are ticked off about something and the women are striving about something um and when he goes then, he gives his reason for that. And he has two reasons. One is Adam first, and the other is woman deceived. And it would appear that Paul is not saying, because there's a hierarchy of men and women that's rooted in creation, because Adam was first is not a principle, it's a narrative. And I think he is correcting their local false narrative with a true narrative. So what would their local false narrative Their local narrative is 
uh, Artemis first and, you know, hot stuff. And he's like, well, actually, in the real narrative, Adam's first and the woman's even deceived. <laughs> not that he's not saying as the prototype of all women, more women are deceived. I think he's going after their mentality that's local, that's related to Gentile myths and saying and making a correction against their false creation story with elements of the true creation story that would correct theirs. I think he is equalizing things. I don't think there's a feminist, feminazi sort of as uh, a, a spiritual reality in their view of their goddess and needing it to be corrected with something out of Genesis. And then what is the number one thing Artemis gives them is they perceive that she's saving them through childbearing. And I think Paul is saying, this is the Paul who's been in a city where all he has to do is touch an apron and have it sent to somebody and they're healed. And they're healed. Miracles yeah. are happening relating to their God. I think Paul is telling Timothy, if women are godly, they're not going to die in childbirth. He's not saying it for all time, for everybody. He's saying we are in the era of establishing our God is bigger than their God. And they are losing something, which right now is a benefit of teaching. But what they're gaining if they have a certain kind of quality, basically, if they continue in the faith, they will be saved through childbearing. And he ends the whole section with, this is a faithful saying. I think he probably took saved through childbearing from an Artemis saying somewhere and gave it his Christian spin because he loves to do that. So explain that a little bit. And then I want to go back to just what you just said. So okay. Explain that you think this is a, because I thought that was fascinating, that this is a a statement that he would be taking from their culture and using it for them to understand, which Paul does often in other places. Um, And you make the point that sometimes because it's not put in parentheses, we don't really know that it's him using the culture's language, if you will, or phrases that they would understand. Well, he ends his whole section with, this is a faithful saying. But because about 500 years ago, we added numbers and paragraphs uh, guessing that was an interpretive choice. Right. We tend to, in our English translations, put this is a faithful saying, colon, if somebody desires to be an elder, they desire a good thing. Totally new idea. I'm saying I think it goes with what was before it, not what comes after it, which is she will be saved through the childbearing. And and what marks that as a saying is it's in the singular, and then Paul flips to if they basically continue in the faith, love, you know, charity. Um, so Paul is a good enough grammarian that he doesn't make that kind of mistake with a language. If something's singular, he's, it remains singular. But he has flipped from singular to plural to say she'll be saved if they whatever. But if he's just borrowing a saying that they know, uh, then she will be, you know, she will be saved through the childbearing in quotes, if you will, if they, and then outlining qualities of a faithful woman and then saying this is a faithful saying so i loved that i think that's probably very accurate i've seen paul do it in other areas and in in understanding that that he's borrowing a statement and again making comparisons without using names right he's borrowing a statement he does that in other passages that help make sense of it um it's good for a man not to touch a woman nevertheless right right? he's probably quoting that first and then giving his christian yep Right, right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
This was the most shocking information you gave in the book to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be for other people, but you're going, what? <laughs> and I'm like, the idea that Paul is actually at this moment, what I think I heard you say was that Paul at this moment in history is saying to these women, I know that the fear is is if you let go of Artemis and you don't give her her due diligence of what she you owe her to get through a safe birth, that you're going to end up in trouble. And I'm guaranteeing you, yeah. you will be saved through trial. In other words, you won't die. You won't die, yeah. I and, absolutely think that's what he's saying. And you're saying you think those miracles were Abs- happening at that time because absolutely. we can see the heightened miracle working going on Correct. as evidence to prove to these people that Artemis, as strong as she is and as long yeah. as she has been their goddess... This God that I'm offering you can not only do what she does, but supersede her. Absolutely. You believe in magic? All I got to do is touch something because I'm in Christ and the person's saved. You That's mind-blowing to me. Artemis's ability to save? Are you kidding? Jesus is so much better. And, and <laughs> so here we die. go. It'd be interesting to see how long that promise played out yeah. To actually change the thinking that was so ingrained in the culture, right? Like that would that miracle would have to happen for a while in order for people to shift their true loyalties. But I also want to emphasize what you were saying is that was a time period and is not something that God says to us today, obviously. Correct? So I think it's true. I mean, the Bible is always applicable for all time, but I think we pulled out the wrong application. Our application needs to be Jesus is better, Jesus is stronger, uh, that faith and hope and love are Christ likeness are the goal, that our inheritance is better, that, uh, that God meets us in our greatest fears. That does not mean that he is honor bound to do miracles on our behalf. It does mean that God is, is about the gospel and he is about proving that he is more powerful than all our gods. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great application of that. And for a church planner, (laughs) like learn your culture, (laughs) right? Learn, learn the music of the culture, learn them, go to the movies, like saturate the sayings, use the sayings and on Jesus's behalf, take it and flip it for them and say, you think it's this, but it's this. Totally. Um, I want to go back to one thing. uh, Well, actually two before we close out with a a final question but like one of the things that paul said was let women learn in quietness and let women learn was kind of a new concept right this idea that uh women should learn doctrine and theology etc that's actually the interesting thing how he asks them to learn is not all that different than what you said he uses the word quiet previously in the passages um he uses first peter uses it in first peter also and um aspire to the quiet life he tells everyone like right he's not he's not saying run for emperor right (laughs) and he's not saying never talk and he's not saying never talk right that's correct right he's not saying women need to be silent when in the presence of men that is not what he's saying i mean that has been taught i i actually worked at a church that 10 years prior to coming on staff women were not allowed to talk in the uh, the business meeting oh, that they goodness. had once a year with the whole church. Mm-hmm. They could attend, but they couldn't speak because you're in the presence of men. So want to clarify, that's not what Paul was saying. No. But um, he also says, uh, you know, that they are not to teach 
or or and it depends on how you slice it um, right. and have authority over men let's talk about that word authority um, okay. because as you mentioned and I've learned this before it's a rare word yeah, so exousia is the normal word all through the New Testament for authority. It's a very common word. The word Paul chooses here is authentane, which appears zero other times in the New right. Testament. And not that many times have we found it in antiquity. I'll tell you my hunch, which I haven't put on paper because I can't prove it, but my hunch is, just like he borrowed a, a lot of other Artemisy words, I have a feeling we'll eventually find that it was an Artemisy word that oh, had to do with autonomy. Interesting. And Paul's view, we know when he wrote to the Corinthians, and he was probably in Ephesus when he wrote to the Corinthians, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, I think a section, that's where we look at head coverings, and a section that's completely neglected in that passage is that Paul says, yes, woman comes from man, but every man comes from a woman, woman. and they all come from God. And, and Paul's theology of men and women is interdependence. Yes, absolutely. And I think the, the front of that word is ought, from which we get autonomy. And I think he is more concerned about autonomy in their teaching. And he is he is looking for there to be interdependency rather than a spirit of independence. Um, so you when you do a study in the ancient world on the word authentane, there are some neutral, like I prevailed, you know, upon him to let me rent his boat. And, you know, I, I authentained, basically. So you can be translated prevailed. Uh, there's one instance where it referred to murder. Uh, but but it's not always super negative. Like, in the same way that autonomy could be super good. Like, you could right. be, you know, you're signing a contract with some autonomy. But you could also say, in my marriage, my partner is so into autonomy. And you know that that is not a good thing, right? So <laughs> I think it's more how he's using it. Then, then just we can't just pull a word study out because we don't have a context for it. But it is really interesting that Paul doesn't use the normal word for authority, which makes me go, I just I wouldn't really be comfortable translating it authority simply because that is such a common word elsewhere that it gives the idea that he's thinking a hierarchy. So I think one of the things you make a point to here is that the teach and have authority. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something happening because you you do you do hit the the beginning, which I like that you start where when where um, I want men or husbands to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without anger or dispute, which tells us there's anger and dispute. Correct. Right? The, yeah. the men are fighting over yes. something, right? Something. And then we have this uh, women uh, do you know learn, but do it in quietness. I do not allow you, Paul says, to teach or have authentane, right, autonomy, or some kind of argumentative way in which they're going about something. Um, Is it possible that there's something even going on the way women are actually, wives are actually responding in the congregation to their husbands? Yes, and I want to back up to who the command is given to. So if we remember, it's a personal letter. And Paul doesn't say, wives or women, learn in quietness, you can't teach. He never addresses them. He doesn't even say, Timothy, don't let them. He says, I'm not allowing. Mm. He's talking about his practice. Um, Now, by implication, if you're his disciple, you're going to do what he does. 
But it so often gets taught that Paul is given this sort of command for all time, and he's actually describing his practice. Which, again, if you're going to say Paul's desire was for half the church to be silent in the presence of the other half of the church in every context, in every situation, he, for him to just put it in the first person and say, this is my practice, is pretty tame. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's really Paul's opinion for this time frame. Yeah, I think it's yeah, best That's what if. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually do yeah. too. So yeah. um, Philip Payne makes the argument, and you bring this up in your book, yeah. And I love Phil Payne. He is a brain with a body walking around. I mean, whoo, he's a little hard to understand sometimes. But I've read his books like three times over, and I finally get something. You know, like he's, he's the king really, of footnotes. He is, yeah. Which I love his I actually footnotes. love about him because then I can track down his sources. Yeah. I do, too. I do, yeah. too. I, I love Philip. Um, but it makes for slow reading. <laughs> yeah. You got, you got to go deep. Um he he makes an argument about uh, this this idea of teach and uh, authority that you talk yeah. about in your book. Kind of kind of tell us a little bit about that. So one way to understand it is it's possible that it's not two different things. The to teach or I'm not. He basically his word order is not I am allowing a wife or woman to to teach or to authentine. Uh, and you could take that as two different things. Neither is he allowing them to teach, nor is he allowing them to have authority. Have authority. But you could read it as one thing in the same way that I'd say, I am sick and tired of listening to that. And it doesn't mean that I'm sick or that I'm tired. <laughs> the two together mean one thing. So my understanding of Philip Payne on this is that he sees that as, um, I'm not allowing a woman or wife to teach in such a way as to have authentane in her teaching so like usurp in her teaching you're uh so it and there there's a legit reason to see the text that way that it's that's a, it's a one thing that he's prohibiting or i shouldn't say prohibiting he's not prohibiting he's saying that he doesn't allow right uh, personally personally um, at yeah. least in ephesus yeah because he well, seemed yeah but he he's does, not in ephesus when he's writing it so like is he saying that's my practice in ephesus yeah, yeah, good point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. even think about that. Yeah. All right. So let me conclude with this. Again, ladies and gentlemen out there listening, so many things in here we have not discussed. Um, and that is why you need to get the book, Nobody's Mother. Um, I want to ask you, you started on this journey to make sense of your life, your experience with infertility. What does this mean when I've been taught that, you know, I want to be a mom. I I, I want to teach my children, yeah, and that, that yep. right? All all of those yes. things. So, when you finished this work, um, and and have done a great job in helping us understand the meaning of Paul's words to Timothy, how do you see this helping women? Well, first of all, um, when Paul wants young widows to marry. It's important to know that in the same way that there's one word that could mean woman or wife, <clears throat> there's also one word that could widow that could mean single gal. Doesn't mean she's necessarily ever been married. Okay? We don't have a word in the vocabulary for that. It's so rare at the time of Paul. For a and, woman to be single. Yes. Yes. Okay. And and to be committed to that even, right? To the point where he's saying I actually want her. Now, we have to remember, this is not a context where you go get a dating app 
Like, this is where you... <laughs> and you're trying to find the love of your life. And it's just not the mentality. Not the this world. This is an economic uh-uh. agreement. <laughs> right. And so you can have a husband next week if you want and have the right matchmaker, yeah, or the right dowry, whatever. Anyway, um, I think one of the things that we've missed as Protestants is we've overcorrected uh, for celibacy and raise the family, which family is super important, but we've made it sort of the be-all, end-all. Yeah. Uh, we've tended to say our kids, when you get married, blah, 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 instead of if you get married. Yes. Um, and when you look at the history of the church on celibacy, um, of course, you know, most of it was in a world before contraception. So it was very much either or. <laughs> you wouldn't right. have a woman doing the life of the mind and also having raised kids. Like, that, that's just not... You know, I love that I have that option today. It's yes. not going to be for most of time and most of geography. I think what it does, first of all, is it elevates singleness to mm. an honorable state. And uh, it says that uh, that is a beautiful vocation and that the church should recognize that as eschatological. There's a day coming when we won't marry and we won't need to have kids because there's no death anymore. And it whispers to us of a future state. So we need to elevate. First of all, it elevates singles in my eyes. And it makes me look at places where people think they have to have a husband to get a ministry. Because they mm. have to have a covering to say, you are completely in God's image. Now, uh, go use your gifts. Bless, bless the church. The other thing is, uh, I have had uh, a number of women in class in their late 40s who now have kids raised so they valued motherhood they've done an awesome job raising their kids and they are where i was going is there nowhere in the church for me right i've got all this time to give i love jesus i have management skills from juggling a lot really can i only use it at home and some of them are going through huge identity crises right and to say to them no 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 though the world needs your gifts the church, the, the, the harvest is plenty, the workers are few. Uh, you have a stewardship. So both, both our married women, <clears throat> excuse me, married women and our single women and our widows. And then certainly there is a place for married women in the church. It doesn't mean that you have to have children. Uh, I couldn't have children as a married woman, and that didn't mean I was a loser or that God had plan B for me. God had a wonderful plan A for me. It just took me a while to figure out who I was right. to know that. You were trying to go to plan B, and he's like, sweetie, I, that's not my plan. I was. <laughs> I thought it was his good and beautiful plan, and if I didn't embrace it, that I had a low view of family. And Yeah, I think, right. I, you know, I have had a lot of women really struggle with. I have, I have friends who, most of my close friends, have never been married and do not have children. Okay. And... Um, love Jesus and have given yes. their lives uh, to serving yes. him in their businesses and in the church and in their communities uh, and have always felt like second-class citizens in the, in the local church because they are not married and do not have children. Um, and so we need to have a whole discussion about what, what, are, what are we saying to women um, in these situations. And then just, you know, the other day, you know, went through fertility and re- wreaked havoc on her body and finally had a child and then got pregnant um, unexpectedly without help. And the baby died inside her. And so she's really struggling with what, what am I as a woman? Am I a woman? 
because I'm not carrying babies or, you know, like there's so many things here that uh, are very painful for women um, that I think walking through this book, understanding Paul's words to women and men and the church is, is very helpful and balming to women. Um, My prayer is that it sets people free. Yeah. And, and when we got passages that don't, we might need to reconsider them. Why are they putting us in bondage? So anyway, I want to thank you, Dr. Sandra Galan. Uh, Your work is cutting edge, gives us tools to move forward and, and I think helps women, um, who want to walk faithfully with Jesus. So where can they find this book? Nobody's mother. Amazon, you know, all the play, Barnes & Noble, uh, ChristianBooks.com, my website, SandraGallon.com, but usually people misspell my last name, G-L-A-H-N, <laughs> so you might want to go with one of the easier to spell options. <laughs> and you do have a website, right, where I they can kind of dialogue and get more yes. uh, stuff yes. that you're writing and, yes. and speaking on, and tell them again all how to that. spell your last name? G-L-A-H-N, SandraGallon.com. Okay. Great. Guys, go to our website, get the book. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope today's conversation helps you understand scripture better, particularly passages that tend to be used to hold women back. Um, I hope you know that Paul is for us, and even more so, and more important, is that our Jesus is for us. Um, I've I've said often, Jesus is good for women. So I'll talk to you next time. Yes, amen. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.